Welcome to Apocryphal Australia, where we present stories about Australia's past that highlight the obscure, the unsubstantiated and or the fanciful. These are tales of people, places and events that have been hitherto overlooked. So we're going to research them until the cows come home and then we'll present them to you. It's a job that needs doing and we're the ones to do it. Welcome everyone to episode 8 of season 2 of Apocryphal Australia. My name is Michael Pryor. And my name is Stephen Higgins and I'm stunned that we're up to episode 8 already. Yeah, episode 8 of season 2 and 10 episodes of season 1, that's 18 episodes about Apocryphal Australia. We should do an episode about Apocryphal Australia. (laughs) We certainly could. But before we get into our stories for today, Stephen, I want to continue this little introductory remarks section, if you like, where I've been taking our listeners on a tour of the Apocryphal Australia offices, the headquarters here, and sharing some of the items and objects we've accumulated over the years of doing our research. And after last episode, I thought it might be fun to dive into our fish tank, metaphorically, of course. Our large fish tank is a cheery aspect of the office of the Apocryphal Australia Headquarters, a gift from notable snorkeler Despina Anodyne. As well as fish, it's where we keep submarine objects sent to us, and in particular, it hosts a segment of the conning tower from the fabled World War I underwater raider, the experimental AE-0, a craft so silent, so stealthy, so far ahead of its time that once it was released from the dry dock where it was built, sans crew, it was never seen again. The piece of metal we have is about the size of the tongue of a Hungarian castle hound, and it was dislodged in that fateful launch. We keep it underwater where it belongs. I've never seen it. Stephen, you haven't seen it? No, 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 no. I've, I've, I've been all, all through the office, but I, I don't remember seeing that. It's working then. I think it's time to just move sideways straight into item one today. Stephen, what have you got for us? Well, I was going to say this is an interesting one, but they're all interesting. This one is all about the Hanging Gardens. We'll start off with a bit of background about the person who created the Hanging Gardens. This was Charles Munro. Charles Munro was born in 1923 in Crumbly, a small town in southwest of England. With his parents, he emigrated to Australia in 1934 and the family settled in Tuckley, New South Wales. The young Charles attended a local prestigious secondary school named after Sir Keith Grammer, a local entity. Charles was a standout student at Sir Keith Grammer Grammar. He excelled in the arts and aloofness. He went on to Sydney University where he read. So far, so unremarkable. In 1950, Charles Munro moved to Victoria with his new wife, Esmeralda. They purchased a plot of land in Gallagher Street, Dandenong, and began to make a home for themselves. Charles worked as an actuary, even though he didn't know what that meant, and Esmeralda looked after the home. But there was something unsettled in the Munro household. Esmeralda pined for the green hills and lush gardens of her youth. Charles noted this unhappiness and resolved to bring a bit of the green hills of southern New South Wales into their new home. 
and thus began the myth and legend that was the Hanging Gardens of Dandenong. Charles organised the staggered delivery of 37 cubic metres of Southern Highland soil to be delivered to his house. He also purchased a concrete mixer and enough timber to construct solid wooden concreting frames. As he completed each set of concreted garden boxes, he had a delivery of soil to fill them. He also planted each row of boxes with a variety of local plants. Week by week, month by month and year by year, the concrete boxes were added to and, given the lack of room in the typical suburban block, the only way for Charles to go was up. So up he went. Before the local council realised what was happening, Charles had begun the construction of his hanging gardens. The gardens soon passed 75 metres above the ground and kept growing. Eventually, they contained such a stunning array of plants that they were protected from interference by a local environmental group. They were the wonder of the neighbourhood. The watering system alone won design awards, and Charles had to place a red flashing light on top of the garden to warn approaching aircraft. Sadly, however, the hanging gardens of Dandenong failed in their original intention of making Esmeralda happy. She became jealous of the attention Charles gave to the gardens, and she ran off with an accountant. Heartbroken, Charles tried to destroy his creation by digging away at its foundations. In doing so, he discovered a huge cavern beneath his land. He began to build garden boxes for fungi in the cavern and extended the hanging gardens extensively, but downwards. He began to charge people to see the gardens and with the proceeds, he purchased another property three kilometres away in North Dandenong. He hired workers to begin the construction of a northern section of the hanging gardens at that location all the while excavating more earth from underneath both the original property and the new North Dandenong location. After two years, he was able to finish the connection of the now circular hanging gardens, with a semicircle above ground and the fungi garden semicircle beneath the soil. Sadly, disaster struck some four years later when a dodgy ratchet clamp on the beneath ground watering system gave way. The resultant leak flooded the subterranean section of the loop, which collapsed taking the above-ground semicircle down with it. Charles Munro sold his two properties and moved to Queensland, where he found work as a concreter. Stephen, it always strikes me as extraordinary that something so remarkable, something so extensive, remains basically unknown to this day. And the really, really amazing thing is there are no existing photographs of the Hanging Gardens of Dandenong. If we didn't do this research, people wouldn't believe it existed. Oh, no, I oh, know. It's amazing, isn't it? Now, Michael, the, the wonderfully secretive, hard-to-pin-down world of spies and espionage. That's where we're going right now, Stephen. My first paper for today. You notice I'm calling these stories papers. I'm trying to add a little bit of academic gloss and glamour to our work. Not that we need it, but still. <laughs> Ambrose Comby. Ambrose Comby was born in Golgol, New South Wales, in 1910. His parents were Edward, a mild-mannered bank clerk and part-time artist's model, and Clytemnestra Comby. Showing academic promise early in his secondary schooling, he was sent to Sydney to live with his grandparents Nebuchadnezzar and Amatus Quamby, who had a large and mysterious house in Woolloomooloo. In 1927, he entered the University of Sydney, mostly for a look-see. The following year, he went back and was admitted to a law degree. 
Sometime later, he graduated and was immediately snapped up by the Australian Public Service. Initially working in the Postmaster General's Department, over the next 15 years he is documented as being part of the Attorney General's, Defence, External Affairs, Home Affairs and the Trade and Customs Departments, with some time spent in Treasury, gaining remarkably wide-ranging experience, despite the fact that none of the other people working in these departments can recall him at all. It was at this time that Ambrose Quamby understood his particular genius lay in his forgettableness. Instead of the man with a thousand faces, Ambrose Quamby was the man with one face that no one could remember. Deciding that this innate anonymity was an advantage rather than a disadvantage, in 1949 Ambrose Quamby sought a position in the newly formed ASIO, the Australian Security Intelligence Organisation. Within months he had made himself an invaluable, irreplaceable part of ASIO, as the records of minutes maintain. Again, despite no one remembering him being in the room at any of the meetings thus minuted. After ten years of intense intelligence work at ASIO, Ambrose Combe resigned and went freelance. Interviewed at the age of 92 in his retirement home in the Blue Mountains, Ambrose Combe revealed that in his later years in ASIO, he chafed under the secrecy that was demanded of him. He felt stifled, unable to express himself in expansive espionage and counterintelligence activities, thus his decision to go out on his own. As a freelance spy, Ambrose Quamby had the latitude that was denied him at ASIO. In his own words, he hawked himself out to anyone who was ready to sling him a guinea or two. Within months of hanging out his shingle, he was spying for Egypt, Canada, Jamaica and, after independence in 1962, Burundi, plus several non-government organisations like the Free Seas Movement and the Illuminati. All this despite having nothing of any worth to sell them. In his retirement home interview, Quamby admitted that he relied on his air of experience, mystery and forgettability to convince those who hired him that he'd passed on vital information and they'd just forgotten about it ten minutes after the meeting. A crack shot, Quamby turned his hand to assassination in the mid-1960s, rebranding himself as Ambrose the Dingo. He never accepted a commission, putting unfulfillable restrictions on his actions, such as requiring his targets to be identified with red jelly babies, that he was able to decline every one of the commissions. Still, the rebranding added to his air of mystery. Eventually, Quamby brought himself to the attention of authorities, not through making a mistake, but by sending ASIO a letter saying, "'Somebody needs to look into this bloke.'" Several weeks of intense interrogation followed after Quamby was arrested, despite the fact that he was holidaying in Fiji at the time. Quamby was sentenced to 25 years for espionage and treason. He was apparently released after 15 years, despite no one having seen him in his cell in all that time. Ambrose Quamby died in 2009 at the age of 99, but two years later his coffin was exhumed only to find that it was empty. Oh, the man who wasn't there. Stephen, your next piece, can we say that it's looking up? Well, it's certainly got an air of positivity about it, Michael. I think we can say that. This paper 
I should say, <laughs> is all about Peter Spanica. The only son of Greek immigrants, Peter Spanica, was born in Yena, Western Australia, at the age of zero. He grew up with all the usual childhood ambitions. At one stage, he wanted to become a fireman, but was dissuaded from this by an uncle who was a fireman. Then he wanted to become a teacher, but he was talked out of it by an older sister who was a teacher. Finally, he wanted to be an astronaut, but was talked out of that idea by a neighbour who had signed up with NASA and had actually been in space. He told the young Peter that it wasn't all it was cracked up to be. Peter became disenchanted and tired of all the negativity around his family, and so, in 1988, he travelled to Victoria to fulfil a week-long ambition of becoming an optimist. He settled into his university course well, but was surprised when the lectures seemed to take an unusual interest in lenses, physics and the anatomy of the eye. However, he reasoned that being a good optimist involved looking at life in a certain way, and so optics were important. He did well in his classes and exams and landed a job at G.J. Tolley's Optometrists almost immediately. He quickly became a raging success. Peter did not sell a single pair of glasses and he got virtually no return custom, but he had a steady stream of people asking for him by name. Peter thought it was odd that his, the optimistic advice he was called upon to dispense was almost always related to eyes and glasses. He thought his co-workers had an unhealthy interest in eye charts and machinery as well, but he continued to dispense advice as he saw fit. When people asked him if they needed glasses, he invariably replied, not at all, some carrots will see you right. They asked why things look blurry, and he said life could appear to be blurry at times, and that just meant it was soft at the edges. He advised a good night's sleep, after which everything would be okay. When people asked why they couldn't see things clearly, he simply said it would soon pass. Peter wrote a book called Seeing Things the Way They Are, which became a bestseller. In it, he proffered advice about all sorts of ailments and pointed out the power of positive thinking. He said that if things seemed unclear, that was more an indication of the way the individual was looking at things. At the insistence of his employer, he suggested that glasses might help the situation and pointed out that anyway, glasses certainly wouldn't hurt. The success of his book led to a series of lecture tours. This only cemented the idea that success could be enjoyed with just a positive frame of mind. He then set about writing a series of books, The Happy Man, Turn That Frown Upside Down, and If You're Happy and You Know It, Pull a Wad of Cash Out of Your Wallet, were all bestsellers. He became the doyen of daytime TV talk shows and it was often called upon to address the corporate world. It was only after 40 years of dispensing optimistic advice that Peter discovered the difference between optimist and optometrist. He simply shrugged and said it was all to do with the way you looked at the world. Peter Spanaker retired from optimism and optometry and currently lives on a farm in Queensland. He is very, very happy. Stephen, that one put a smile on my face. Yeah, it was nice to have a nice positive one, wasn't it? Here, here. Michael, the other day I came into the office and I saw a few of our office people doing the most outlandish dance and then I noticed something on the board that hinted at why they were doing it. I'm assuming this was all part of your research. That's right, Stephen. Look... Let me tell you all about the Whirly. The Whirly was a frenetic dance in the early 1960s, not dissimilar to the Frug, the Watusi and the Twist. 
except that it's certain that the whirly was entirely homegrown Australian stuff. And don't just take it from me, they're the words of A.J. Abercrombie, music historian and all-round scholar, in his monumental work, Australian Popular Music Man, where I found most of the details of this phenomenon after I was alerted to it by a listener. What makes the whirly special, apart from its undeniable Australian origin, is that it was infectious. No, I mean actually infectious. It was passed from one person to another in the same way as we've seen several recent viral outbreaks spread. Let me describe the dance before we go too much further. It had the advantage of being able to be danced to just about any up-tempo, fast-beat rock and roll tune. And it also had the advantage that it could be danced by just about anyone, regardless of sense of rhythm, beat, timing or even balance. In some ways it resembled the toddler's game of spinning on the spot with arms extended until falling down dizzy. But the whirly added the flailing of the arms, the flapping of wrists and the twinkling of fingers, punctuated by kicks, either small jerks below the knee, or for the supple or foolhardy giant chorus line whole leg action. That's a basic description, especially of the early appearances of the whirly. Variations occurred and the movements became more elaborate over the year and a half of the whirly craze, or epidemic, call it what you will. The first appearance of the whirly was at a dance in the Meredith, Victoria, Town Hall in November 1960, where Joe Guitar and the Beat Boys were playing. Halfway through Chuck Berry's classic Sweet Little Sixteen, several dancers spontaneously began whirling on the spot in what Abercrombie called the proto-whirly. It immediately caught on, and within minutes the entire crowd was whirling away after adding the signature arm flailing and kicks. While Joe Guitar was perplexed, he knew enthusiasm when he thought he saw it, and when he finished Sweet Little Sixteen, he swung, without a break, into a passable version of Jerry Lee Lewis's Whole Lot of Shaken Going On. Five songs later, the entire crowd had slumped to the floor, dizzy and exhausted. The Whirly had arrived. The next weekend, the Whirly broke out at dances in Geelong, Balan, Winchelsea and Ballarat, all in Victoria. Within weeks, the dance had spread enough for newspapers to take notice, and headlines decried the phenomenon, with op-ed pieces from prominent church leaders linking the Whirly to declines in morals, cleanliness and, most awfully, church-going. In an attempt to quell the outbreak, authorities acted. Dance halls were locked down amid great outcry, especially from whirly denialists, who loudly protested that the whirly wasn't a thing, it didn't exist, and if it did exist, it was a plot by the great cabal of record producers to do something or other, and the only recourse was tinfoil foot covers. Dance bands were thrown out of work, but given a special stipend for the duration. Some fraudsters climbed on board and it was a scandal when discovered that several church choirs tried to rort the system and claim the payment. Some areas tried keeping the dance halls open but insisted that dancers wear lead shoes or tie their feet to bricks. The whirly spread nonetheless and by March 1961 the nation was in the grip of a whirly epidemic. Soon variants started popping up. The swirly, the wibbly whirly, the whirly bee and the Omicron whirly. All infectious, all capable of causing dizziness-related exhaustion that could endure for hours. Human nature being what it is, some tried to cash in and released records. 
The Whirly Summer by Slim Stickler, Let's Whirly Again by Dave Douglas and the Rotors, and the unfortunate My Dog Does the Whirly by Tiny Tina Thomas. One TV executive lost his job when he aired a live whirly performance that purportedly set off spontaneous whirlyism across the country. Fortunately, the whirly ran its course, died down and vanished by the end of 1961, apart from sporadic outbreaks in the 70s, when a sort of retro 70s tribute band, the Hot Rod Lincolns, sparked small outbreaks. But this event ended when the band members were offered small ongoing parts in TV's The Flying Doctors and gave up music entirely. The Whirly. May we never see you again. Just think, if someone had combined the Whirly with the Pogo, they might have actually achieved flight. (laughs) Now that would be something to see. Stephen, your third item for today, what have you got for us? This one is an object, uh, and it's a very important object, and I guess in a way it's a little bit of a companion piece to to the the piece on Edward Gilby from last episode. This one deals with the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation, Warrigal. In 1942, the Japanese threat was very real. Australia was about to find itself in the midst of a Pacific war that it simply was not prepared for. Fortunately, Wiseheads caused the creation of the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation in 1936. This institution was responsible for the design and manufacture of many of the great warbirds that flew in defence of this nation. They already had proven their worth with Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation the Wirraway, the Windjeel and the Boomerang. They also had created the training aircraft, the Wacket, and the light bomber, the Woomera. Facing new threats from Japan, the federal government caused the creation of specification FA-27, which detailed the requirements for a new fighter aircraft. At the same time, they also sent out a design brief for a new staff car, which would be suitable for the transport of high echelon military figures. Given that the Holden Motor Company was affiliated with the Commonwealth Aircraft Corporation, these design briefs were sent together. This led to the development of the CAC Warrigal a four-seater fighter aircraft with twin-bench seats, stick-shift gear selection and ample room in the boot. The prototype, CAC FA-27A, was completed in 1942 and test-flown on the 27th of August at the Point Cook Air Base in Melbourne. Test pilot Peter Jeffries recalled that the aircraft handled like a cow and it became affectionately known as Daisy from that point on. The aircraft was the widest most underpowered and with a top speed of 82 miles per hour, the slowest aircraft to see active service in World War II. At first, 24 aircraft were sent to Darwin to protect the town from enemy forces in the north. These aircraft acquitted themselves well in combat with the Japanese Zero aircraft, simply because the Japanese aircraft had to slow down so much in order to engage the squadrons of Warrigals that they became easy targets for anti-aircraft fire from the ground. Later it transpired that many Japanese pilots did not engage with the Warrigals as they believed they were Japanese. The Allies at the time had a habit of referring to Japanese aircraft by Western names, Rosie, Tony, Dinah, etc. So when they heard the Warrigals being called Daisy, they assumed they were on the same side. In a related matter, the Australian Army soon became shocked at a series of motor accidents linked to their new staff cars, which were capable of speeds up to 360 miles per hour. Daisy, 
eh? So we're talking about bovine aviation. <laughs> well, it certainly looked a little bit like a cow, and, it's, and as according to the test pilot, it handled like a cow. Now, to finish us off for today, well, apart from the mailbag, which comes later, we're into the world of entertainment. We are, Stephen. And in some ways, speaking of companion pieces, as you were a little earlier, this is a companion piece to my previous paper, The Whirly, because we're talking here about sleepy Rick Hazel, rock manager, producer, promoter and magazine editor. Michael Richard Hazel was born in 1938 in Paddington, Sydney. His parents were Donald and Mary Hazel, and they have backgrounds so ordinary I'm going to skip over them. At the age of four, Richard strongly expressed the desire to be called Rick, and from then on, this was his name. He showed a modicum of musical talent in primary school, mastering the triangle and the wooden block by the age of nine. In high school, as rock and roll hit, he formed his own band, Rick and the Ricksters, with him on drums at the age of 16. After three months, the Ricksters declared that he was too unmusical even for drums and ejected him from the band. He immediately offered to find gigs for the Ricksters to manage payments and to continue badgering his dad to drive them to venues in his van. The Ricksters broke up in 1957 due to lack of interest. Rick Hazel immediately nagged other local bands until they let him manage them. Soon his stable consisted of the Jive Five, Wally and the Winners, the Nighttime Cats and solo artist Bethany V. All of them dropped him after less than six months when he failed to find them the recording contract he'd promised. Undeterred, he started a scheme of making recording contracts just in case he ever found a recording studio to be middleman for. After a couple of years of helping roadies, sweeping out venues and making promises to up-and-coming bands, Rick's parents died and left him a sum of money large enough for him to build and equip his own recording studio. Before too long, the Station Street Studios became legendary, mostly for producing demo records at record speed. Any young singer with stars in their eyes, or any band who thought they really had the goods, were soon making tracks to the Station Street Studios. In 1965, Rick, unhampered by anything like training in sound production or standards, was pumping out dozens of demo discs a day, six days a week. After a year of this, the strain of his operation began to tell, and he hired an assistant of the same frame of mind. Together, Rick Hazel and One Take Terry rolled out hundreds of demo discs. Some were listenable, some were liable to damage any sound system they were played on. Along the way, they discovered the Green-Eyed Monsters, the Turnip Brothers, Lots of Love and Rising Bread, and other, even less known bands, all of whom were immediately signed to management contracts once their demo disc was finished. As if this wasn't enough, Rick branched out into concert promotion, bringing the big-name bands to Australia for extended tours, or at least the names of big bands. His scam here was to book tours for totally imaginary bands who were the next big thing, demanding non-refundable deposits that went straight into his bank account when the bands unfortunately broke up just before arriving in Australia, always due to artistic differences. Giving that operation up after a while, Rick sold his recording studio to One Take Terry, who immediately swung into solely making novelty discs, 
achieving hits with The Hissing Song, One, Two, Three, Five, and Our Favourite Prime Ministers. Rick went into radio, immediately adopting the sleepy Rick Hazel moniker, despite running a mid-morning shift. He spun mostly his own discs, but dropping in a few others for credibility's sake. His catchphrases like, Recording time, and it's the end for the end, were notable for the lack of catchiness. But Rick had his mind on other things, namely the lucrative area of payola. Rick wasn't the only radio DJ open to taking money to playing certain records. He was, however, the most blatant, having a scale of charges sticky taped to the recording booth window. Rick Hiesel died in 1969 when he put on one of his own discs from the early days, the first and only recording of The Bruisers, a band that reputedly had a distinctive pre-garage vibe. The record exploded halfway through and a shard of cheap shellac punctured Rick's throat and he died in seconds. Oh dear. The entertainment industry that claims so many lives. It has. And, and the ones we feature, it's almost always in tragic but you know, relatively risible circumstances. Now then, the mailbag. It's mailbag time. Oh, and good. you have to get excited now, Michael, because we have got some overseas correspondence. Oh, I'm on the edge of my seat. Great. Okay, here we go. It's really good to see a, an interest in all things Australian from around the world. First off, from Mr Arlint in Aha in Bulgaria. He's written in, uh, but he just says hi. <laughs> so a bit, a bit of an anticlimax there. Susie Deneep from Shirley in New, South, in New Zealand sorry, has written in wondering if we knew about jo- Johnny, I think it is Deneep, Susie's father, who lived in Gerted in New South Wales. Apparently he was the first man to posit the idea that aliens had visited Australia in the past and performed experiments on animals, which is why we have some strange creatures here in Australia. It's a theory, all right? It's a theory. It's a theory, yes. And finally, Sam Klopp from Perth, Western Australia, that's P-I-R-T-H, not the better known capital of that great state. He writes in to state that he lives in Perth with an I. Good stuff. Thanks for that. And can we just say to people, keep those cards, letters and packages rolling in, but um, please sort of be judicious. Yes. And your mailbag items? Yeah, just one from me today, Stephen. And this comes from Athol Macewielder from Intintintin, New South Wales. And he couldn't write in fast enough after our last episode. He points out, in regard to your story about Zoltan Feshwefesh, you claimed that his vision was for marsupial cheese, but then you went on to claim that he was pursuing Echidna Edam. Surely the Echidna is a monotreme and not a marsupial. Well, Ethel, while we welcome pedants at Apocryphal Australia, I think Zoltan Feshwefesh had his mind on things other than accuracy. Marketing was his first priority, after all. Very good. Well, Stephen, that was another episode of wall-to-wall apocryphal Australia goodness. But it is time to wind up. So before we wind up, now you need to give our plug for... All of our social media platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. We're everywhere. And people really do need to follow, subscribe, like, comment 
tell everybody about Apocryphal Australia. And as they say in the classics, that's about all we've got time for. So from me, Michael Pryor, farewell. And from me, Stephen Higgins, farewell. You've been listening to Apocryphal Australia, a podcast dedicated to giving new life to aspects of history in the same way that Dr Frankenstein gave new life to remains that should have stayed where they were. And that's probably a bad analogy, but we don't resile from it. Resile? Us? That's not what we're on about. Frank and fearless explorers of the back blocks and byways of the past. That's what you can count on every episode. So subscribe, set your reminders, get everyone on side and be ready for your next episode of Apocryphal Australia, coming to a listening device near you. So until then, be kind to yourself and others, okay? Okay.